welcome to another episode of Sacred Cinema here on 2XX 98.3 FM People Powered Radio. I'm your host, Jimmy Bernasconi, and this week's episode is entitled The Dance of Romance. Is that how you would say it? The, the dance of romance. Is it shouldn't it be the dance of romance. Or is it the dance of romance? Um, yet this week we're looking at films where dancing is used either intentionally or unintentionally. I think it's pretty intentional in all of these films, but it doesn't really matter, at least for the purposes of sacred cinema, where we just try and peel away some insights to help ourselves. Forget what the directors were trying to tell us. Um, <laughs> this is a, We're looking at films where dancing is used as a metaphor for let's say sexual liberation, or at least in, in getting intimate with someone in a very adult, uh, very serious way. Intimate adult sexual connections, intimate adult romantic connections, essentially what we're talking about is what's being symbolised by the, the dancing in these films. Now, it makes a lot of sense, but when we get into the films themselves, it makes a lot of sense that dancing is often used as a metaphor for that sort of thing. I mean, they're both both acts, dancing and, and sexing, are both acts of free-form movement that... Uh, people do to feel alive and makes them feel carefree and open and and happy you know they, they're embracing their bodies when they do it and interesting and interestingly as well they can they can both be done in various styles as well you know you've you know it can, it can be very um, it can be an act of self-expression kind of both of them and um, you know in, in some senses um you know, something that someone might do to to embrace uh you know the, 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 their inner animal uh, but in another sense they can also be very rigid uh, very authoritarian at times. We have an instructor, one person sort of instructing the other person what to do in a very sort of rigid and regimented way. Sometimes people sort of prefer it when it's a bit like that. Um, dancing, I mean. Um, but, but look, let's. the question we're asking before we get carried away is, is really what can these cinematic depictions of dancing, where it's used as a symbol for sexual liberation, what can they tell us about sex itself or love and connections and romance more broadly well in order to answer that question uh, we're going to need to look to the films the first film we're going to look to is uh 1987's dirty dancing of course directed by emil Ardolino. and uh, then we're going we're then going to move on to the howard hawks film from 1953 um gentlemen prefer blondes and then we're going to finish off with a fairly new release um Ty West's film from last year, it's a prequel to a film we've actually done on the show before. Uh, the prequel being, uh, the, the sequel being X, um, but the prequel that we're talking about this week is Pearl, starring uh, Mia Goth, who also wrote the film. Uh, but let's kick things off now with Dirty Dancing from 1987. So I imagine everybody in the world has either seen this scene or the scene where Jennifer Graham, Patrick Swayze are rolling around on the floor. Um, we've all heard the line, Don't, no one leaves baby in the corner, uh, that sort of thing. But let's let's just quickly zip through this one as our springboard for today and look at sort of the, the basic themes that it looks at um, and build off those with the other two films. So the first thing we need to say is sort of the main character's name is Baby, which is makes a lot of sense that she's called Baby because this is a coming-of-age story. It's about her coming into her maturity, let's say. And she's sort of a typical sheltered girl, you know, loved by mummy and daddy, and they go off to this pretty... Pretty lame and nerdy um, <laughs> dance camp. Like maybe this would be fun if you're like 13 or something. You want to meet girls or something. But like this is just, just so lame when you watch this movie. Um, 
But it's not until she realises that it's the actual employees, you know, the poor kids um, who run all the dance classes and, you know, wash up the dishes and everything. They're the ones that really know how to dance. They're the ones that really know how to love. Uh, And it's not until she sort of meanders off into the the bungalows down the bottom of the camp that she sees, you know, that they're doing the real dancing. They're not just doing the foxtrot up in the ballroom. They're rubbing and grinding their body parts on each other and and learning who they are as, uh, you know, as as, um, fully-fledged adults, let's say. And obviously, we have a very central theme here of, you know, the the, the 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 positives that can come from embracing, you know, the salt of the earth, the the genuine, more organic, the more natural, down to earth side of, of of what it means to be a human. You know, and in order to unlock your inner womanhood, specifically in this film, and in all the films, we're kind of mostly focusing on the female protagonists. Um, in order to sort of unlock that inner woman that real woman inside you do have to sort of embrace you know a term that we've used before especially when we talk about sort of beauty and the beast archetypes and things like that but uh, unlocking the the inner animus so it's a Jungian term which is like the, the masculine figure within a female character or the opposite is the anima which is the feminine figure in in the man so you know Patrick Swayze's character this this nice rugged a sexy man who knows how to tango. He's sort of Jennifer Grey's animas. He's sort of the beast to her bell, let's say, in a Beauty and the Beast context. And we actually have done a whole episode on Beauty and the Beast, um, the archetype, that archetypal um, character dynamic, uh, many months ago. So please go back and watch that. Listen to that one if you'd, if you'd be interested. But um, we, we've obviously also got this use of uh, dance being... Uh, used as a metaphor for sex or intimacy or, or, you know, romantic connection. I mean, it's in the name as well. It's called Dirty Dancing. But I think it's important to note that it's not just about learning to dance and dance being a means of um, maturity, right? As we mentioned at the start, there's many different forms to dancing. There's many different forms to sex as well. It's This film is really focusing on specifically on dirty dancing, the, the dirty side of dancing. It's not just doing the quick step with, with your dad in your nice tutu. It's about learning the moves that are those things that maybe when you were a little girl you thought were you know we're not allowed to do that that's something but but deep down you know that it's something you maybe want to try and that sort of thing that's what this film is about it's about it's about learning to embrace that dirty side of one's psyche the dirty side of one's sexuality let's say but in a good way i don't mean in a bad way i mean dirty in, in that kind of positive way and it's not until she sort of, you know, embraces the sweatiness of the of the Latin dances that's going on, and then, as I said before, grinding the body parts on each other, that she actually can, you know, fully embrace her womanhood. And we see this in a lot of films, a lot of coming of age dance films. You see this in like Greece, obviously, you know, with Livy Newton John's character. You know, again, there's like a socioeconomic thing there where it's not until you know she puts away the nice skirt and the and the the cardigan and and wears the sort of sexy leather and stuff like that, she can really embrace her womanhood. And similarly, in Hairspray, well, it's less probably less socio socioeconomic bent although i suppose that's an element of it but it's more like a racial bent to it which is like you know it's not until the those characters can you know that they can't really um come to terms with reality until they depart from uh their sheltered lives and go down into the the detention uh room it's a very similar scene to when jennifer gray first meets patrick swayze in this film versus um when the characters in hairspray go into that detention scene and all the kids down there are dancing that they sort of come to come to terms with what's actually going on in the world and where the where the real creativity is let's say um, but also just, and, and this isn't, this is more of like a side point, but I just thought it was interesting that the film does sort of take a, 
make a choice to not just make the working class characters in this in this film um, simply be a means of serving Jennifer Grey. Like they're not simply just objects that she can use to learn to. Um, it's a very sort of Marxist criticism of it. At least in the first half of this film, it's like, not just a means through which she can then embrace her womanhood and and excel as a person herself. But she actually uses her privilege and her intelligence to make Patrick Swayze feel uh, more fulfilled in himself, more whole, and and um, unlock his creative potential and his 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 truest self as well. So it's an interesting side note to make, but. It's all very simple, isn't it, right, to just say, you know, we should just let, you know, women as they mature just to go out in the world, off you go, have all the sex you want to have, all go for it. That's not sort of the, the typical thing we say to our daughters when they go off to university, for example, right? It's a little bit more complicated than that. And in order to unpack those, the, the, the complicated nature of this sort of thing, let's move on to our next film. But before we do, just remind you, while listening to 2XX98.3 FM, uh, this is this is Sacred Cinema. I'm your host, Jimmy Bernasconi, and please stay tuned for more quality radio conduct content, more radio conduct, um, more radio content after Sacred Cinema here on Two Double X. And also, consider jumping onto our website to consider subscribing. Uh, maybe little do a little do a little dance uh, for yourself in clicking that subscribe button. Um, or sponsoring the show as well. Maybe you can get those coins to do a little uh, pirouette for us. Um, but moving on now to our next film for today's discussion, Gentlemen Prefer Blondes, directed by Howard Hawks. Uh, it's a famous musical, um, obviously starring the great Marilyn Manson. Uh, no, Marilyn Monroe, of course. She plays Lorelai Lee, and she's joined by Jane Russell playing Dorothy Shaw. And I think it's kind of key this week to, when talking about this film this week, to sort of talk about what they symbolise uh, both next to each other and also sort of like, well, I guess, the, in comparison to one another. They're, they're kind of, there's a bit of a, I guess you could say there's a bit of an archetypal thing going on here, but Lorelai, the Marilyn Monroe character, is kind of like your typical let's say bimbo uh, uh, who is kind of mesmerized by shiny things and diamonds and will kind of take the hand of any man and I stress that any man who promise her riches and and comfort and, and lavish a lavish luxurious lifestyle and again we do have a socioeconomic bend here as well where uh, both Dorothy and Lorelai are you know they, they announced at the start of the film that they came from the wrong side of the tracks in, in Little Rock um, so again we have you know le- learning to transcend um, I suppose the the difficulties of a of a difficult background through the art of dance, let's say, and then comparing uh, in, in contrast to Lorelai, we have Dorothy, who is a much more sort of sophisticated, but also very talented and, and sexy woman, who you could say, and I know a lot of people kind of whenever you hear about a film from the 1950s, it's, it's like, oh, well, how is this a regressive film? And I know that this film has actually been redone as a, a modern musical, which is much more socially progressive and things like that. But I, I do think Dorothy's character is, you could make a very strong argument that she kind of is the idyllic woman, not just in 1953, but kind of like in the modern age. Like she is very good looking and she's very talented and a good dancer, but she's also very smart and she's also very witty and, and she's very charismatic. And sometimes people don't like that as well because it's like, oh, you know, that she's too perfect and that's it. But she's also like, she's a sort of flawed person. She like does the wrong things sometimes. She also gets like disappointed and self-conscious in herself for falling in love with guys. And she's like, you know, she's very self-aware at the same time as well. Like I, I think that like she is kind of the full package in, in terms of when you want to see like a, a woman who is um, 
who is someone someone that one might strive towards, but also be realistic in that in that kind of that nexus that we always want to see. So, I think there's a way that you can view this film, which is kind of like in in light of Dorothy, right, with her standing right next to her and being a constant comparison. The film kind of asks the question. Uh, it almost like poses like it's almost like a, that sort of Shakespearean social experimental way. It kind of poses the question is that can the blonde, can the blonde bimbo be considered a useful or noble member of society, specifically in light of the Dorothys, right? But like, you know, she's also very beautiful, but she's also smart and on top of it. Like, what what, what use does a blonde bimbo have in the world? And, and I think the, the title of the film is really apt, obviously. I mean, it's the title of the film, but uh, it's a question about, you know, when, when, what, what do we mean by gentlemen prefer blondes? And, and I think the film is really about defining what a blonde actually is, and obviously very apt that the Anna Darnamas film is it's called Blonde, and big connections there, but let's not get into it. But anyway, um, in asking that question about, like, what, what, what sort of utility, how does the, the, the typical blonde have any sort of cachet or any use in society as, as a member of our society? I think in 1953... There's really a concealed question there, which is really um, uh, when we when we ask sort of a question around like what does it actually mean to consider the blonde a noble of member of society? Like what are the sub elements of that? What are the kind of the other questions we have to ask? It's kind of like well, what's like the morality right around? Let, let, let's say, let's say you marry a blonde in 1953, a blonde bimbo type in 1953. What's the morality around letting your gorgeous bodacious wife? onto a cruise ship with the Olympic team and a bunch of rich men, right? Uh, which is what, the, sorry, that's the premise of the film, that, that Lorelai and Dorothy are going off to Powery, France, and they're on this this big cruise ship with, you know, hilariously the Olympic team and all these rich guys and and kind of poses that question. It's like, you know, like, are you okay marrying this girl if these are the kinds of situations she's going to be in and you're going to be challenged with as a man. And, and so I've kind of gone the wrong way about describing this film, but it's also key that Lorelai's character, Marilyn Monroe's character, has this husband, Gus, who's a very meek and nerdy kind of, you know, he probably would have been played like, like, by like Rick Moranis in this film came out like 30 years later. Um, but he's just kind of this nerdy guy who's, who's made his money on Wall Street, I think. Um, and it's like, like, you know, you might love her because she's got, you know, she's very beautiful and everything, but, but like loving her and marrying her entails letting her go onto a cruise ship with all these other rich men and, and a very physically attractive men. Um, are you sure you wouldn't prefer a Dorothy type or, um, you know, like, like what's the morality around letting her do that? And also what's the morality around, um, hiring a private investigator to, to track her and to make sure that you know, she's not getting up to any mischief, which is what happens in the film. And that's where we have uh, the other male character who ends up being Dorothy's special buddy. Uh, and I think the film, like watching it from a 2023 context, we might not get that, but like the, the film really stresses this idea of like, this is a big deal that he's letting his very beautiful wife off to do this thing. Um, because when I talk about it being a concealed question, what this is really about is... Are you okay? Can can you come to terms with the fact that you have a sexually charged, very beautiful wife who is not going to be fully fulfilled by you and your, your your nerdy spectacles? Like, is it something that you're actually coming to terms with? And are you prepared to live that out without having to do something um, as sort of dehumanizing as getting a private investigator to do? And, and the way it sort of stresses the and emphasizes the, the big deal. I, like, I love this about musicals that you, you kind of know when the, the story is hitting like a key theme. And it's like when there's a musical number about what's happening. So there's like a whole musical number about, you know, bye-bye, baby, bye-bye, um, which, which, which is stressing and emphasizing this whole thing. It's like, 
oh my God, my wife is about to go on to this big cruise ship. Anyway, I think I've made that point pretty clear. So it's ultimately a question about being okay with, I suppose, the, the truth, the truths behind womanhood, right? As a rich and successful man who's found a, a, a trophy wife, let's say, uh, are you okay with the fact that they have just as animalistic sexual, such the same as animalistic and sexual desires that a man might have, or, or maybe in a different way, but they still have those those sexual charges and those sexual sexual desires? And it's really, I think it's really important in this film that Marilyn Monroe is not at all faithful to. Um, and it's, it's quite a funny how they make it out like she's not having sex with the guys on the boat. It's, all the, it's quite a funny movie, honestly, to watch it back from 2023. And like the, the jokes about, you know, oh, th- this man hugged me like I was a goat and he was a snake. And you know what that really means anyway. But basically it's like, you know, is he okay with the fact that she's going on this boat and, and probably sleeping around or at least has done in her past? And anyway, getting to the crux of what I'm trying to say, the moral of the story is, well, the moral of the story, I think, is well, very well contained in like the theme song of the film. Uh, and if you haven't seen the film, you would know the song from Moulin Rouge. It's the film that um, Nicole Kidman sings when she's swinging around up there. And there's some very clear connections with Moulin Rouge in this film. Um, you can see how a guy like Baz Luhrmann would have been inspired by this film. It's also got, you know, it's got the the the, um, the showgirls and going to Paris and everything like that. But it's the, the song is Diamonds Are a Girl's Best Friend. And it's not just that the, the – the, and I'm going to talk about specifically the number itself, but also it's it's repetition throughout the film. So the, the theme is used at the beginning. It's obviously used when Marilyn Monroe sings it. It's used another time in the film, which we're going to touch upon in a second. And then it's used at the end to sum up the film so as to say that the moral of the story is don't forget, you know, diamonds can be, let's say, they can be a girl's best friend and that can be – okay let's say so specifically talking about when the, the the musical number that takes place right we see all these backup dancers running up with big red hearts and marilyn monroe is pushing them away and she's like no 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 right a kiss on the hand may be quite continental but i don't want the love hearts right i want the diamonds buddy and in a very simplistic literal way we could say that she's clearly someone in you know for a bit of an incel you might be like oh that's terrible she's disposing of love for some kind of like superficial monetary gain or something like that but what it's really doing i think it, with the symbolic nature of pushing the sort of the stereotypical red you know grade 3 heart that you write on a piece of paper with a red crayon which isn't really a true symbol of love that's like a, a Disney symbol of love what it's really asking the audience and Gus as well her her fiance is is to accept um, and kind of love Lorelai's bimboness and to redefine what bimboness or blondness actually is right um, and there's also kind of like a suggestion in this film that Dorothy ought to embrace her inner bimboness at a time and, and weaponize it in a certain way and, and we, we literally get a scene where she dresses up like Lorelai in order to advance their, their, their motivations in the film so that's what I mean before uh, and, and she sings Diamonds Are a Girl's Best Friend when she's in the, the courtroom and, and does that whole that whole thing um, so when we talk about redefining blondness or bimberness, it's it's kind of like a selfish kind of sexuality in a way, but it, it's sort of like a like a deep embrace, a complicated embrace of superficiality, right? We, it's actually a way of seeing the superficial as sophisticated or um, limitless, let's say. And and that kind of makes sense when we actually think about what love actually is really. And there's a, and there's a good bit of dialogue at the end of this film that I won't, uh, you know, maybe you want to go see this film. I don't want to uh, go watch this film, but I don't want to ruin it. But, but it, 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 it really, I think what the film is kind of lifting up by the end of the film is that everything 
can either be like either everything is superficial or nothing is superficial, right? Like, like, like if a woman loves a man for his money or vice versa, or a man likes a, a man loves a woman for her good looks, there's so much more underneath that, right? Like using the diamonds as an example, if a man has diamonds, it probably means that he's rich. And if a man's rich, it probably means he's worked hard. If it means he's worked hard, it probably means that, you know, he's had opportunity or it could mean that he is, is a very smart person. Like these things are all symbolic and and um, indicative of, of deeper truths, right? When we, when we, I mean, on a show like Sacred Cinema, we don't just take a simple image and say, well, this is representative of this. That's the end of it. Uh, symbols such as a diamond have an infinite, sim- there's an infinite symbolism behind any given um, image or picture or object, and and I think what the film is getting at uh, is, is 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 kind of the, the idea that you know that, that, that a person can love someone for their money and still love them. Like it's in the sentence. Like there's actually a, there's a funny I think there's a quote that like Larry David does about like how like he's like oh, you know people used to tell him oh your wife only loves you for your money and he's like. Well, I do have money. You know, that's who I am. That's part of who I am. So we, we get into this place where, like, it, it's a very easy thing to do, just to cast someone aside and say, well, you know, you're simply a blonde. You're simply a bimbo. There's nothing more to you. But there's an infinite number of dimensions behind someone in, in the things that they love and the things that they care about. And it's all very contextual. And maybe to make that point better, let's sort of look at the flip side. Like, what are the ramifications of denying someone's yearning to be that kind of person right to 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 want to go after fame and fortune for example or or at least a, a kind of luxurious and shiny kind of 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 romantic existence well let's move on now to our third and final film for today and this would be Ty West's film uh, from 2022 Pearl and if you haven't if you, if you don't know this it's, it's the sequel to X which is a film about um it's also starring Mia Goth and she's like a porn star that goes down to this farm in Texas and films this video and we've talked about you, you, know, you can go back to the episode we talked about it um, and in, in Pearl we're talking about the, it's, the, it's the bad lady in X her prequel when she was a young girl growing up in 1918 during the First World War living on this farm and it's really a story about a, a girl who lives on a farm with very strict German parents um, who really wants to do something more with her life she doesn't, doesn't want to just be a farm hand and she specifically wants to become um, a showgirl. She wants to be on a line with a bunch of dancers. Uh, and there's, you, 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 I would think that there's a connection to um, gentlemen prefer blondes. Like you can see it in the um, technicolor kind of vibe to this film. And I think uh, Ty West actually did say that this film, um, or not, not, that, not that gentlemen prefer blondes specifically, but that that, that Pearl was kind of um, uh, kind of inspired by a lot of golden age musicals and that sort of thing. Um, so, uh, she is, um, she sort of learns to sort of break out of this or, or learns that she wants to break out of this farm hand life when she's introduced to the, the world of sex and, 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 and pornography and things and, and is, and not necessarily guilt tripped or, or, um, uh, well, I suppose she kind of is guilt tripped a little bit by herself, I, I guess, and, and kind of denies her own inner sexuality. And there's a really good scene where she's pretending to talk to her husband who she's cheated on and she feels ashamed for having cheated wanted having you know sexual feelings about other men and that sort of thing and we do feel sorry for her and we and we see that you know there's a there's an inner sexual person that wants to leap out in in 1918 in a strict german family right so what we're seeing is kind of like the, the false denial of the blonde blonde being a symbol for embracing fun and being confident and embracing the the, the, the sort of uh, the fun loving sexual um, the person that accepts sex as, as a natural part of womanhood um, and, and and the reason why I say it's a, it's a false denial is because um, well it's a denial because she's not literally 
blonde, right? So she's denied her blondness in that sense. And also when she goes to audition for this dance number, they actually literally say to her, you know, you're not the small blonde that we need. And she says later in the film, you know, there's a friend of hers that's blonde. She's like, I'm not blonde. I should have been blonde. But I call it a false denial of her blondness, right? Her life is a false denial of blondness in the sense that um, she's, she's a shapeshifter. So even though she's denied from being blonde, I mean that in a metaphorical sense, it's, it's, it's a false denial. What I mean by that is that if we look back to the fact that it's, it is a sequel and that Mia Goth, the actor who plays Pearl, then also then goes on to play a character in the, in the, in the sequel to this who is a porn star, this, this figure of Pearl, she's really a shapeshifter. She's, she's the every woman in a lot of ways. And I think what's key to this film um, is, is that it's, it's, it, it's sort of, it, 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 when looked alongside X, is that it is... Um, it does kind of suggest that all people are shapeshifters or ought to see themselves as shapeshifters if they want to be, uh, in that we feel very tortured and we want to rebel when we're put in a specific box, when we're told we're not capable of living adventurously or dangerously or embracing that that inner woman inside us or that, that inner sexual being inside us, right? It, it does sort of lift up the universality of the sort of sleeping beauty archetype as well, this film. Um, it's, it's very clearly by being set in 1918 during the Spanish flu pandemic. It's very clearly... Um, a reference to what we've just gone through with the COVID-19 pandemic and the dangers of making someone feel like they can never prick their fingers and hiding them in the in the farm room and always wearing a mask when they go out into public and all that sort of thing, which is obviously parallels her experience as a farm girl, not being able to go out and embrace her sexuality and that sort of thing. But what's crucial to all this is the result of all that. So she's been denied a fun-loving life. She's been denied being able to embrace her inner sexuality, which she could very easily embrace and in the later film does, right? The result is what I want to call sort of an... Uh, the result is utter concealed chaos, right? Uh, which is more dangerous than just straight-up chaos. Now, it's chaotic in the sense that the outcome of this is all chaotic because she goes around killing people and it's, you know, blood spilled everywhere. But it's concealed because... This, it, it's got, it does have that sort of the ugly truth behind the veil idea that you see in films like Stepford Wives and Don't Worry Darling and, and Blue Velvet as well, which we've talked about on the show. And we see that in a lot of films, but in a, very, in a lot of moments in the film, but in a very original way. Uh, in the actual dance scene, um, it's kind of this weird, surreal, um, kind of wonky, bastardized, creepy sense of the ideal. Like she's dancing and she's got a big smile on her face, but like there's, a, there's like the backup dancers are all dressed like soldiers in a, in a, on a battlefield, just like, you know, it, it's, it's, it's pretending to have a good time. It's pretending to dance. It's pretending to embrace the funness of, of life. But the truth is life is a war. Life is suffering. Life is a battlefield. Um, and, and we like to pretend everything's going well. We like to pretend people are happy and grateful, but really what's going on inside is a war. And we see, obviously, in the, for the final shot of this film, I don't want to give it away, but we see that, again, this concealment of inner torture. If you want to put someone through that, if you want to deny someone that fun-loving, um, that side of them that wants to embrace their inner animal, you're going to get someone who is utterly crazy, right? So if we can bring everything together this week, right, women... Or let's say all people, let's say, but we've specifically focused on female protagonists here, but so, but let's say all people need to sort of embrace their inner animalistic side, particularly in the sort of the sexual realm. But, it, but it's very easy, it's easier said than done, right? Particularly if, you know, you're a man and you're, you're letting your daughter or you're letting your wife go out on that cruise ship, right? It's very easy to say, you know, it's, it's good for you to go out there and embrace your 
that in itself, but it's, it's very hard to actually, you know, put one foot in front of the other, let's say. But but the opposite is way worse, right? The denial of the inner blonde, right? The denial of the inner seductress uh, or the inner sexual animal does lead to a sort of concealed chaos where someone might look like they're doing okay, but behind the veil, they're going absolutely bonkers. And interestingly, if we look at all three of the films, all three of the films that, we, that we've talked about this week, only one of them ends in tragedy, and it's the one where the, the where our dancer is uh, is left all in her lonesome, right? Because in Dirty Dancing, obviously Jennifer Grey and Patrick Swayze have got each other, and in and in Gentlemen Prefer Blondes, Jane Russell and Marilyn Monroe. I mean, they have each other, but they've also got their own respective boys themselves. It's only in Pearl where where Pearl's sort of left on her own by the end of the film, and, and tragedy ensues. So maybe we could say to to tie everything together in a very neat way is to say that maybe the next time we might feel awkward about our significant other dream to get down and, and dirty, maybe it's worth remembering that, that every good romancer needs a dance partner. Well, unfortunately, that's all we've got time for this week on Sacred Cinema. I've been your host, Jimmy Bernasconi, here on 2XX 98.3 FM, People Powered Radio. Thanks so much for tuning in. And please stay tuned for more quality radio programming here on 2XX. Also, jump onto our website to consider subscribing to the station or sponsoring the show. We love love if you could do that we'd love if, you could, if, we, if we could hear from you email me contact at jimmybernasconi.com anyway see you next week cheers